What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. What a treat to speak with Quentin Tarantino about his new book, Cinema Speculation. Film criticism, memoir, cultural history, a love letter to movies and the filmmakers who make them. It's all of these. I agree with The New Yorker's Richard Brody, who writes, There are three basic kinds of good nonfiction. The kind that results from consummately professional work, featuring thorough research, organizational clarity, analytical insight, wide-ranging knowledge, and writerly style. The kind that represents an outpouring of passionate affinity to the subject matter, a Virgil-like journey into otherwise inaccessible realms and the kind that delivers the uniqueness of personal experience. Cinema speculation has a foot in all three domains. And my take is that Quentin pulls this off spectacularly. Like my last conversation with Quentin, we spoke by phone. I was in Carl Gables, Florida, while he was somewhere on the road in the middle of a very, very successful book tour. written something that is um so moving and so it's kind of a kind of a love letter to writers directors movies um and actually as i was reading it and after i finished it all i wanted to do was see those films that you wrote about that i knew nothing about even though i lived through that whole period So well, it, well, thank you very much. Well, that's a that's a that's a uh, really moving uh, uh, reaction to the piece. Thank you so much. <laughs> so the very the very first movie I remember seeing at the age of six was Psycho, and um, <laughs> it kind of scared the shit out of me. And I'm wondering what were my parents thinking? And then I read. <laughs> And and I didn't become a great filmmaker like you. So <laughs> somehow something got lost for me. But when you started seeing these films at a very young age, your world was very different. Talk a little bit about that. Well, look, I you know I have a line in in the book that I've, I've read a couple times and went to live readings, and it always gets a good response. And and it kind of made me realize that it was a better line than I thought. Um, but also, the more I've been reading it, the more I've been kind of doubling down on on the on the, uh, the sentiment of it. Is so I'm talking about you know uh, uh, you know, how did some of the other kids respond to you know me seeing this movie me seeing these movies in like third grade or fourth grade that uh, they weren't allowed to see. And I go and I say and I well you know I I, I came across as pretty sophisticated. And then I then I say, and because I was seeing the greatest collection of movies that America has ever made during the time that they made it, they were right. I was. No, absolutely. I feel yeah. I feel incredibly lucky that my, you know, my entire 
you know, uh, 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 experience of what going to the movies was like was going to see the best movies ever made. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty, it's, well, no, it's very fortuitous that you started seeing movies as early as you did. And I, and I think that's what I loved about the structure of it. I mean, I started writing, I had lists and lists of the movies that you mentioned, uh, starting, starting in the very first chapter of little Q watching big movies, right? All those, you know, when I was, you know, I guess I was, you know, like a 15 year old, 16 year old trying to be hip and cool. And I didn't find myself in a lot of Jim Brown movies, you know, in those days. <laughs> but I realized how much I missed. It's the same thing when, you know, when I, I had friends at the time who were listening to Bootsy Collins and yeah. Farm and Funkadelic. And, you know, I was listening to like Bob Dylan and all those guys. And now as an adult, I'm realizing, man, I missed a lot of great stuff and have come to love <laughs> that stuff now. But I want to go back and I want to watch all those Jim Brown movies, particularly the one that you talked about. Some of, some of them are pretty fun. Now, the, the one I would recommend is not the one I talk about, Black Guy. All right, the one I would recommend is, uh, I think, done the same year, the movie Slaughter. Slaughter is the one you recommend? Cool. Yeah, cool. Slaughter is really fun. Slaughter is really good. Yeah, and, and but, but actually what you did when you wrote about it is you wrote about it through, the, through your eyes. And tell me about the choices you made in writing this. What what were you thinking when you decided to sit down to write this? Because it's it's part memoir, it's part film criticism, it's part celebration. What what was your strategy? Well, I, it's interesting. I think about it's a good question. Um, I think with any other literary endeavor, maybe what I started off with isn't necessarily what I ended up with, you know, and I, I had to go on the, on the journey, not exactly knowing where the journey would end. So if I were going to, uh, so if you're talking to me two years ago, when I was beginning to write this, I would have probably said, oh, well, it's just going to be a collection of uh, analysis different chapters dedicated to different movies that I decide to write about and I decide to put under the microscope or I have something to comment on. And it would just be a, a, a collection of, of those movies. And if I had even made like a, um, uh, a table of contents of the movies that I would have talked about back then just to uh, inspire myself, there would probably be about, you know, there'd probably be quite a few movies that would be on that list on that imaginary table of contents that didn't get talked about in this film, I mean, in this book. And uh, so that was the idea, just to be this collection. Then I ended up writing what I thought was going to be like an introduction, which is, uh, ends up being the first chapter, uh, Little Q writing big movies. Now, that writing like that wasn't necessarily what I was trying to do. I wanted to in, in, indulge in more analysis. But when I wrote that chapter, I realized... Okay, this is the book. Everything happens here has to have an umbilical cord that's connected to that chapter, and I need an end at at, at the very end. Of well, the and then and the way you right, the way you bookended it with the Floyd Ray Wilson footnote, the Floyd <laughs> yeah, <right>. footnote. <laughs> yeah, so after I wrote that chapter, all of a sudden, uh, 
it put it put limits and structure and demands on the book that it didn't have before, which was a very uh, uh, a potpourri of whatever you know whatever movies I wanted to write about. After I wrote that chapter, then it was like, okay, I really can't write about any movies that I did not see in in during that time when it was released. Not that I even have to talk about having seen it at that time, but it all it all has to be connected to that little key chapter. These were things that I discovered then. Now I can feel differently about them now, and I. Uh, uh, but it's like uh, they all have to be from that time period. It can be something I discovered later. And uh, and then it, that also connected that even if I'm whether I talk about the personal experience of seeing it or not, I have to have a personal experience with it. That started turning the book into uh, more of a memoir or autobiographical piece. But I'm actually really kind of happy about that as time went on because, um, you know, Pauline Kael always said that they asked her, uh, would she ever write her autobiography? And she goes, no, 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 I, I already did. And all my reviews, it's there. And I think if you're writing, a, you know, if, if you're writing from a personal space when it comes to film criticism or film analysis, that you can't help but tell your story. Well, you know, it's funny. Well, like, when, when you wrote the Floyd Ray Wilson chapter, I thought, God, would I have loved to have been just a fly on the wall or a, or a, a younger friend, a friend of, of Quentin's and being able to listen to them talk and then go to the movies <laughs> with them. <laughs> yeah, I no, I had a couple that. of friends that knew Floyd. They came down and we uh, hung out at the apartment with uh, me and uh, uh, me and them and Floyd. Yeah, Floyd was a cool cat. <laughs> now, everybody that met him really fucking dug him. Yeah. But, you know, even, you know, so I remember the 70s really clearly. And mm -hmm. your deep dive and knowledge of that period is so overwhelming. And what you did, which I so appreciated, because I believe about, I believe, I believe in this with books as well, is that in many ways, writers of today are standing on the shoulders of others and they don't even realize, right? And what you did is you drilled down, you took a, you took a film like Bullet or, or some of the other stuff and you drilled down as to, as to where it came from, as to who their influences were and, and, and why it worked. What I didn't expect to happen in the book that just sort of happened by happenstance is, is I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it to have moments of actual film history reporting in there. And that ended up happening in some of the pieces. One, because I just, you know, I know a lot of Hollywood lore. I know the, I, I know, I know, uh, uh, a, a verbal history of how this came about and that came about. And that was and writing that in my own words, you know, became a fun little history lesson. But then, you know, uh, I didn't know what I was going to get when I called up Walter Hill to ask him about, you know, some of the experiences of making the getaway. Well, he ended up having this thing. Well, of course he had this incredible amount of knowledge. It was a big, important part of his life. And he was involved at every step of the way. So he gave me such a magnificent, magnificent verbal history of exactly what was going down during the making of uh, of, of that movie that it became one of my favorite pieces and I was like okay I don't want to do every piece like this but this is a really interesting way to go about some of them. It was a great way of doing it and I also like the Paul, the Paul Schrader stuff with yeah, um, I loved all, Taxi all Driver the, all, the, all Paul's and, quotes in it some of the best yeah, stuff in the book 
it's not only amazing, but it, you know, not having that deep, broad knowledge as you do, I didn't realize all that stuff about all of his screenplays, which none of them really got made the way he wanted them to be, right? They were all, yeah. in essence, kind of rewritten one way or another. And what happened with well, Taxi Drive? At least they're thematic, sort of yeah, the, the, the thematic uh, uh, directive or ambition was thwarted. Well, I'm, you know, I could, we could probably talk all day about a lot of this stuff, but I'm going to throw out some things that struck me in, that I just jotted sure. down as I was reading right. it and, and tell me what, you know, just, just riff off of it and tell me what you think. So we great. talk about, and I, I, it's going to be very like all over the place. Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre, one of the greatest movies of all time. Okay, well, okay, you literally, for your first one, you're probably writing the the one piece in the book that I feel I did a cop-out on. <laughs> well, the reason why I brought that up first, you know why I brought that up first? My what? wife, my, my wife now, the very first date we went on, I said, uh -huh. well, let's go to a movie. And, and I said, where do you want to go? And she said, let's go see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> It should have given me some insight into what the next. Yeah, movie no, that sounds like a, that that like. Sounds like a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> she is a keeper. Tell me why you think it's a cop out. What you wrote about? Well, what I well, what, not, not that statement that I think it's a great film is the fact that I don't deal with it. All right, you know the fact that I, uh, right. uh, you know, say, well, this is a perfect film, and uh, what's there to say about a perfect film? So let's move on. Lincoln, you know, the Lincoln, yeah, Lincoln, Lincoln Center, 
Yeah, and it was a big, beautiful theater, a big screen, and it wasn't very crowded, but there was still something better seeing it there. But I'm like you. I, I miss it. I miss not going, you know, I miss not not having it be the kind the event based film that everyone was talking about and arguing. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah, my feeling about that though went deep deep into my thirties to you know, uh, coinciding with me making movies because um you know, I did this at 14 or 15, but I was doing it at 25 or 26, where I would get the, uh, uh, um, I would get in the morning, uh, the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times and say four movies or, uh, or say six movies were opening up that week. And I wanted to see four of them. And, uh, and then I might wipe them out all, uh, I might wipe out all four on that Friday. <laughs> I would lay out the newspaper, okay, where are they playing? Okay, so it's usually a choice between do you want to see it in Westwood, do you want to see it in Hollywood? And I never just chose what was convenient, because if I wanted to see this one playing at the village in Westwood, and I wanted to see this one playing at the Egyptian in Hollywood, then I would go back and forth, (laughs) depending on the showtime. So I would just sort of like map out my whole day. Okay, I can go see the 10.30 show of this, and then if I haul ass, I can get over to here, almost like, like I'm at a film festival. I can get over to here and see this. Then I'll have a little bit of time for lunch, and I'll grab lunch, and then I'll go to Westwood at the Bruin to see blah, 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 blah. I don't know. Then, I can still see the midnight. then I'll have a little bit of time off, and I'll chill out. Then I can see the midnight show at the Crest, the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You know, that still seems like a lot of fun. Something that, no matter how old <laughs> we get. I think it sounds like a lot of fun, yeah. It, it might just be something I, that I, we need well, to Well, I gotta think of a time where there's gonna be four movies I'd wanna see on a given day that are just oh, well, happen to be opening up that Friday. That is the problem, isn't it? So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's you also talk about, and, and I want you to discuss this a little bit, and I remember it clearly. I mean, I remember when. Old Hollywood gave way to New Hollywood, right? When the Young Turks were taking over in 69, 70. Yeah. And all of a sudden you felt like, wow, they're speaking to me in a way that they weren't before, you know, in that Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. You know, being 15 to 18 to 20. Um, So that really, I I remember that happening. Uh, And you write about it so eloquently. And you write about it so specifically as well about the different the different directors and you you even parsed the different kinds of there were the auteur directors who came yeah. more from the european sensibility and then there were the yeah, ones like that, the establishment guys versus the movie right guys. yeah right talk who talk about the anti-establishment auteurs that you know that, who, who well, those okay, people? Okay. The fact that I was able to even come up with that title, the the post-60s anti-establishment auteurs. I I love it. And then even have somebody vaguely quote it, all right, oh, wow, that's actually, I've done something. (laughs) Because Michael Pyle, Michael Pyle, like, defined uh, that other group as the movie brats. But I thought the post-60s anti-establishment auteurs, like, really, you know, that that really did describe Altman, that described uh, 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 Bob Rafelson, that described uh, Jerry Schatzberg. 
Absolutely. But it is interesting because I think oftentimes you do just link all the 70s directors together. And I thought it was an interesting thought experiment uh, uh, to to write out about the fact that no, these kind of these two groups had completely different agendas, <laughs> and kind of came from a, a a different place as far as uh, what they were trying to do with as far as their ambitions of film were concerned, and just even their ideas on film. Yeah, I I, I you know I loved your chapter on Daisy Miller, um, oh. <laughs> and I love that you brought. You know, you, you you focused attention on Barry Brown's story. That was very, very touching and moving. And that you included no, I mean, I that, that. And you included that, that, the piece, that, was, that article that was the you piece wrote. That, yeah, that was the piece that I was the most moved about after I wrote it. Because it just kind of happened, that ending. Yeah, and I was expecting I was, to throw it to Barry Brown at the end, but I didn't quite expect it to, to you know, you know, I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't expect it to be so uh, um, poignant, and uh, so it kind of got to me. It was like I like I meant everything I said, but then I almost really meant it after I wrote it. If you know what I mean? Right. Exactly. For those who don't know, explain Barry Brown's significance. Yeah, Barry Brown is uh, uh, was a, a young actor in the uh, late 60s, kind of an Andrew Prine, you know, uh, a male ingenue type, kind of a soft, soft leading man that, uh, you know, appeared in a lot of television shows uh, around that time. So he's like in the, he's in the, the mod squad and he'll show up in uh, uh, Bonanza or, or some other show like that. And then uh, uh, at some point he, he got lucky and was uh, cast in the lead in Robert Benton's uh, first film, as a director of uh, Bad Company with him and uh, Jeff Bridges. It's a really terrific movie, by the way. And then uh, he, uh, so now he's a leading man and he followed it up as the leading man in um, Peter Bogdanovich's uh, a version of uh, uh, Henry Miller's, uh, Daisy, uh, uh, Henry James' Daisy Miller. And, uh, and he's so perfectly era appropriate <laughs> for the film right, it's right. like it's like he stepped out of a classic painting all right in order to play the role right. and uh then you know what happens to him afterwards is maybe you know uh, uh the film is a flop and then that kind of signals the end of his leading man career he has a couple more independent films but for the most part, he kind of drifts back to doing guest shots on TV shows like he had done before. So now he's on Ironside, and now he's on Police Woman, and he's on these shows. And then his last uh, his last movie in, in 78 is Joe Dante's Piranha, which he's actually quite funny in. Um, and then he killed himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so yeah, then I sad. ended up uh, writing, writing that piece. But then I even found out about the idea. Uh, I did not know until I did some research and found out that uh, uh, he was a cinema expert on genre cinema and on a horror film, on horror uh, uh, horror films in particular, and like really cutting edge stuff actually, not what I, uh, uh, not just what I wrote, Um, like really great Z stuff, he could talk about that. And he used to write for Castle of Frankenstein magazine, which was the Fangoria of its, Fangoria of its time. And you included the article you wrote on uh, Bella Lugosi. Yeah, I, I, well, I looked it up. I looked up. A, uh, a friend of mine has a has a, a collection of all the all the uh, uh, Castle of Frankenstein. So then I read the Bela Lugosi piece. I'm like, oh my god, this is really good. This is really.
really neat. And this is just this is just in the late sixties. This is just before the seventies starts, and his action career takes off. And so I just found it was like a. a I think after that last line, there's a poignancy about Barry Brown that was just sort of hanging in the air. Yeah. And I thought something more needed to be said, but not necessarily by me. And I thought by including one of his articles, by a really good article by him at the end, that would that would, that would let that moment finish in a, in a more Barry Brown-centric appreciation kind of way. Yeah, so for those who haven't read it, I mean, I think that's what you do in this book, which it's not, it's not just straight film history. It's... It's a it's an emotional ride as well because of because of choices like that that you've made. Um, no, and then there's Brian there's Brian De Palma, right? You spent a lot of time with Brian De Palma, and I I didn't under I never knew that his fascination with Hitchcock. I should have probably, but I never really knew it. But you talk about something that I had not not that aware of, and it's just me, I guess. But the the whole notion of Cinema first, camera first. Yeah. What, what is what is what is that all referring to? Cinema first, camera well, first. That just that just means you know uh, the cinema of pure cinema. So it's not the cinema of great literature, and then these actors are sitting there reciting text, and the point of the camera is to capture them reciting text and and saying lines and talking to each other and telling this story uh the idea is a cinema where the camera is the most important thing and it is it it is the motion picture camera and the art of cinema that's leading the story that it's more important than than just the text that the actors are reciting and uh you know that that's you know that was hitchcock's way Constantly, right. and uh, and that's you know that's the way of Hitchcock. That's the way of uh, 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 Joseph von Sternberg. That's the way of Max Ophüls. And in fact, and you... that was what the Palma was, and that was what the Palma was interested in. I'm not. He's not. He wasn't interested in cinema just to recite actors talking to each other. Right, and you you were very funny when you said you met his wife and. Uh, yeah. At one of the film festivals at, at Sundance, and you said, you said that Brian probably wouldn't yeah, like, like my movie. Oh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> because he doesn't like pictures of people talking to each other, and my movie is just pictures of people talking to each other. And you, hey, you're right. You do know him. He doesn't like that. <laughs> no, and then you you do and talk about cinema speculation, which is the title of your book. You have a yeah. you you wonder what it would what a taxi driver would have been like. If Brian De Palma yeah. had been the one to make it, and it would have been and very different. Pure speculation. <laughs> it's just pure speculation. But, but it, 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 uh, uh, but I can kind of see the movie from his eyes if he did that. I that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I know that you spent a lot. I don't of think years. it's a better movie. <laughs> I think it's no, just an alternative no. movie. Just a different movie. But, but I also know that you spent a lot of your early, early life. You know, you worked in, you know, video stores, and you were very involved with. You know, with um, you know, talking about cinema, being a champion for cinema, and and a lot of this book is like that. It's like walking in and meeting the smartest guy you know about a particular uh, art form. <laughs> you know, well, you know, it's like, I'll, I'll, it's I'll like, take that. Well, it's like I'll it's take like being the smartest guy you know about a particular art form. <laughs> you are. I mean, you. I mean, I. I just. I could, it could, there's a course that could be, 
you could do a course around this book. I mean, you could spend a year, you know, taking apart the book and then basically watching the films, reading about it, all of that. You know, and I have to say, I actually have tried over the last month or so to watch a number of them, but they're not readily available, some of them. You know, they're not... See, I don't have that problem with my video collection and my... I know, I know. And my film print collection. I'm not a slave to your Amazon streaming service. Well, I don't use Amazon because I'm a bookseller. You have this great podcast that, that I've listened to. And then you also have this amazing VHS collection, if I'm not mistaken, right? And um, oh, uh, yeah. that's pretty cool to think about. So, you know, first yeah. I looked up, I couldn't find Malibu High after you wrote about it. I thought, that oh, sounds uh, like a trick. <laughs> I want to watch, I want to watch that. Oh, it is a kid. Be- oh, it, no, it, that's, a, that's, a, that's definitely a movie worth watching. <laughs> All right, so where would I watch these, some of these, if I can't find them? If you hadn't unplugged your videotape machine a long time ago, I could I could lend you my Malibu High video cassette, but, uh, <laughs> uh, or I could lend you if you hadn't unhooked your DVD player, uh, I could lend you my. If you, maybe you, maybe your DVD player is still hooked up, then you could be you could find on on eBay uh, uh, a Malibu High uh, DVD. That's perfect. That's what I'll have to do. Um, it was you know I, I, it's also. Uh, also, don't, don't forget to check on YouTube for some of this stuff because some of this stuff is, is available for free. Oh, you know that's that's a great idea too. You know, I'm so glad you had an index as well. The index <laughs> yeah. is really important because you list, you know, all the films are in the index, which is great. Like the one thing I knew I was going to annoy the reader about is I don't have a table of contents where it goes through the whole list of uh, the movies I go through, especially since I had an imaginary one as I was writing the piece. But the reason I didn't include that is because, look, I'm the same way. If I buy a, a, a cinema book where it's some guy talking about this movie versus that movie, then I'm going to kind of read it all over the place and just read, you know, read the films that I'm, I, I care about the first, I care about the most first, and then get around to all of them. But um, I didn't want to encourage that kind of reading because, look, it's whoever buys the book is their book; they can do whatever they want with it. But you know. I live in I, I, I live in the false hope that there's enough people that read it from beginning to end because I think that's the best way to take the take take the book all right where it will have its most impact because that's kind of how I wrote it to some degree or another and um, one of the things I think is interesting for a, a book that is a lot of analysis base is I think uh, um, Characters emerge in the course of the writing of the piece, and they become characters. They literally become characters. Steve McQueen becomes a character, I think, over the course of time. Completely. And, Completely. and uh, 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 you know, so does Neil McQueen, frankly, to say the truth. But yeah. also, so does Burt Reynolds, and, and definitely so does Paul Schrader. Uh, yeah. So do I. And uh, so, uh, you know, so if I'm talking about McQueen in The Getaway, I'm not reiterating anything I wrote in uh, uh, no. uh, from Bullet, because I figure I've already established the character by that point in time. This is a book that has to be read from beginning to end. It's really a oh, book. Oh, thanks for saying that. I, 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 no, no, I don't think that will be how a lot of people will do it, but I can only hope that, that it no, is. No, I think, I think most people will do it, because it's really hearing your voice. I mean, your yeah. voice and getting to know you 
I mean, we spoke maybe six months ago, and we talked yeah. about your previous book. But through this book, I really felt your presence. I know you have a bit of a cold, but would you mind reading a little bit of the book? Do you want me to read some of those Floyd Richards? That would be very cool. If I'm chronicling Floyd as a, as a critic, because he had a lot of opinions about a lot of different movies, um, I compiled some of uh, uh, some of his remembered uh, uh, statements about films, and so I wrote it, uh, you know, as if they're critical quotes from Floyd. And I actually I read this, I, I read some of these to a couple of friends of mine. <laughs> they all ended up saying, "Okay, Floyd is one of my favorite film critics of all time." <laughs> <laughs> so these are some uh, 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 Floyd bits. They will be read in the voice of Floyd. <laughs> Floyd on the film The Spook Who Sat by the Door. Uh, Floyd on the film The Spook Who Sat by the Door. That movie was way too heavy for Hollywood, man. They had to shut that shit down. Floyd on the Mac. If Max Julian were white after the Mac, he'd be the biggest motherfucker in Hollywood. Floyd on Jim Brown. This is one of the best ones. People say Jim Brown can't act. I say I don't go to Jim Brown movies to see good acting. If I want to see good acting, I'll go watch Marlon Brando. I go to see Jim Brown movies to see Jim throw a motherfucker out a window. <laughs> Floyd on Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier is a good actor. But he plays a nice guy, patch of blue roles too long. Now I understand it. He had to play those roles so other motherfuckers could play other parts. But he done it too long. So when he's in Buck and the Preacher, you're like, so what? Now you're this guy? So uh, so when he's in Buck and the Preacher, you're like, so what? Now you're this dude now? Nah, man, you don't play that other shit too long. I can't buy you in this Jim Brown shit. You ain't that guy. You're that motherfucker from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. <laughs> and uh, is there another good one here? Uh, okay, I will, okay I'll, I'll also... Where is it here? Uh, let me find that step and fetch it part. Uh, okay, cool. I found it here. Okay, so, uh, Floyd was very pragmatic about the black performers for that time. They did what they had to do, is what he would say. I once put down Stephen Fetchin. He asked me, have you ever seen Stephen Fetchin? No, I answered. I didn't think so. Don't be so quick to make judgments about people stuck in situations you can never understand. And he, he lived in your house for about a year and a half, right? Or yeah. Years. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. He, he was in the room upstairs, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's really, you know, the, the, you, you talk about how you kind of, you know, you knew he was there, but you knew you couldn't always count on him in one way or another. Yeah, well, he, well, he, not, he was not necessarily a reliable adult. He's not that. He wasn't <laughs> right. that kind of. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. But you know, I have to, okay. Having said that, though, it was funny because uh, I gave my mom the manuscript to read, and the only thing she came back, as far as like you know, uh, uh, any kind of uh, uh, questioning my remembrance of things. The only thing she said, and it was actually a nice thing for her to say, it made me actually feel good. You know, she was like, Quentin Floyd cared about you more than you make it sound. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. That's really cool. To yeah, me. it actually made me feel good. It actually made me feel good to say that. that. Is good. And then I told that, that to some black friends. They go, of course he did. You can tell that in the fucking piece. 
Quinn, it's been you, you're amazing. I've loved this, this couple conversations we've had. How are you doing? Oh, on me this too. Tour? Me too. I was really how's, looking forward to having another one with you, and so close too. How's the tour coming? How's how's everything going? Oh, we're having a ball. It's really, really a lot of fun. Are you with? Are I'm you surprised with, that we're selling out big. Big theaters, you know. Uh, 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 I was like, oh, I don't know how well we'll sell out, but I'll do it. And then, like, no. uh, usually by the time it's like it's the night, it's like ninety-five percent or or completely sold out. And the audiences are really having a good time. I think they're really getting to know me in the Q and A. Uh, and uh, and when I do the uh, do a reading of a chapter, that really usually uh, closes the night in a really good way. No, I, I look. I I, I had I had no doubt that you would sell out and. I think no matter where you go, you would. So I, you have still have that open invitation to come down here to Miami. Are you I, with your wife I, and son? Yeah, yeah. Well, not right now. No, they're in they're in Tel Aviv right now. So they, she's taking care of, uh, of of the fam in Tel Aviv, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll join them again. Uh, I think you know at the uh, uh, yeah at the uh, like the beginning of the December, and I'll be there for the next couple months, you know, just for the for the holidays. This book is brilliant, and. I just want you to know how um, how it affected me in a lot of great ways, and you have that. Oh, you, that's very that's and, very meaningful what you're saying, and I just want you to know I really I really really appreciate it. I actually just woke up late today, all right, so I got up at like a, at, at one ish, all right. So uh, uh, I'm I'm hanging up the phone now. I'm going to start my day. So you're starting my day in a really wonderful way. Thank you very much. Well, you know, you have a real, you know. We, we care about you. We're going to be selling the hell out of this book. And um, thank you, Quentin, for being there for us. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank, thank Ben. God, thank you for there for uh, for being. Thank you for being there for me. I really. This has been a very moving conversation, and I really appreciate it.